Toby Haydock here, spreading the joy and the love and the love joy. We haven't even made it into Liverpool. We're on the fringes of Liverpool in a Holiday Inn, but it doesn't matter because I'm about to speak to a very interesting man. So I'm going to ask him uh, who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, my name's Chris Jury. Uh, I was an actor for many years and um, I was in four episodes of Doctor Who in the 80s called The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. And is it not right that you screen tested for the role of the Seventh Doctor as well? Well... So I'm told. <laughs> I, uh, somebody sent me a link to the BBC website about two years ago in which there was a list of people who had screen tested for the Seventh Doctor and I was on the list, which was news to me. Really? Because John Nathan Paterna put it in his memoirs. That... And I, I remember... What, that I'd gone up for yeah. Doctor Who? Yeah. Did he? Yeah. Because I went to see John Nathan Turner, but I had no idea it was to be the doctor really and then there was another guy a friend of mine uh, who I've done a play with called David Fielder who also went to see him at the same time yeah a screen test of him exists and I'm I'm amazed to hear this I mean I remember going to see John Nathan Turner but I didn't I had no idea it was to, to, to do Doctor Who you just thought it was a general chat yeah so. and then I did get the greatest show in the galaxy so I presumed that's yeah. what it had led to Right. Oh, well. You don't and know something if you don't know what no. you're missing. <laughs> <laughs> so then, 30 years later, I was in the frame for Doctor Who. I'm like, Christ, I'm glad somebody told me. That's well, a nice one. It was lovely. I'm very, very, very proud of it. And uh, did you enjoy Greatest Show, then? If not the best gig, one of the best gigs I ever did. It was fantastic from start to finish, the whole thing. It was Why? amazing. Mainly because of the group of people that happened to come together. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not an obsessive Doctor Who fan, but I am of the generation who, who saw it start. And I was behind the sofa, literally behind the sofa. And the fear of the music and stuff like that. So Doctor Who was a, you know, viscerally part of my youth. You know, it was something, it wasn't trivia. It was really something part of the cultural history that I've grown up with. So I was very... Delighted to be to get the opportunity to be in it, um, but the reason why the gig was so good was because the people that came together just got on like a house on fire. I mean, it is just one of those classics of showbiz, you know, because we suddenly find ourselves in this gravel pit in Weymouth and don't stop laughing. You know, it, it was. Um, I mean, Sophie obviously did loads of episodes, but I think there is. I mean, you'll have to ask her, but. There's a sense that The Greatest Show in the Galaxy was a, quite a unique group of people that came together. Because there were quite a lot of circumstances. We, there was an asbestos scare in Television Centre. So we had to shoot the main body of it in an actual circus tent at Elstree in the car park. So there were all sorts of reasons that made it stand out as a block. But Chris Gard, Sophie... 
I mean, Peggy Mount. Mm. I mean, I've worked with Peggy Mount. I mean, that was just amazing. Uh, and TP, TP McKenna, God bless him. And we just never stopped laughing. It was hilarious. It really was hilarious. And one of the great Doctor Who villains of the 80s in Ian Reddington's and, clown. And I'd worked with, we call, I call him Otis, Otis Reddington. <laughs> and I'd worked with Otis before on... Um, uh, a theatre show, a tour in the, about three or four years before that so I already knew Otis so that was uh, yeah, fantastic, great fun and you know, you went into directing and I, I, I mean I think Alan Waring's visual eye of, of the Doc 2 directors in the 80s I'd say him and Graham Harper are the two that Peter Grimway maybe, but, but of the McCoy era certainly Alan Waring sticks out as, as the director that, that really is very sympathetic to the material and mm. goes the extra mile with it. So how did that translate in terms of his working methods? Because sometimes directors who are, have a good eye are, are, are less good at well, the people side of things. two years previously, I'd done the first series of Lovejoy, which is a series I was subsequently in a lot in the, you know, in the 90s. But we'd actually done the first series in 1985, we'd shot it. And Alan was the first assistant to one of the directors who did a couple of episodes so I got to know Alan quite well because this particular director was pretty hopeless and basically Alan had saved the day and so two years later Alan had gone through his BBC training and become a director and I think it was the Doctor Who was his second gig I think as a director um, so he was going that extra the, the greatest show was his first Doctor Who and the one that his second directing gig. I think he'd done a casualty before as his first, and then he got this four episodes of Doctor Who. So he was going the extra mile because it was his first gig, and what an opportunity to do Doctor Who rather than casualty. Um, so, and God bless him, everything that went wrong could go wrong. <laughs> I mean, the first assistant was sacked. I mean, was crazy. She was off her head. The third assistant, I mean, the stories are hilarious of the things that all went wrong. The third assistant had a habit of, everybody would say, they'd say, right, quiet now, we're going for a take, turn over, quiet please, and quiet please, each out from outside, just, just before action, and it happened all, so eventually he was banned from the set. And it just was, just went on and on and on. And so Alan was like fighting his own crew. Uh, we were all just having a laugh. It was, it was hilarious and fantastic. And did you think at one point it wasn't going to happen? Yeah, because when the when the asbestos scare happened, we stood down for a month. I think it was or three weeks. We were stood down, uh, and then had to be recontracted. So. You know, there was some discussion about whether everyone would be available and whether the show would have to be abandoned. But they managed to put it back together about a month afterwards, I think. And then we all went up to Elstree and did it. And did another ten days or so at Elstree. Well, it's easy to get, of course, Doctor Who is now, you know, big, huge, popular, but you're at the back end of its original incarnation and the impression one gets is there wasn't an awful lot of support. It wasn't a well-loved show beyond the confines of the people that made it. No, and... JNT was a, was a an old school BBC producer who saw his main job as to protect the show from the corporate hierarchy. Um, 
and so he wasn't particularly popular because we were just, you know, this was 87 and we're just on the cusp of the corporatisation of the BBC which had already started was underway by then so there was a sort of power struggle going on in the BBC across the institution between between the previous generation where the power really had, had resided the creative authority shall we say not power but the creative authority had resided with directors writers and producers and we were moving into the area when the era we're now in where that creative authority has been taken by executives who now have the final say so we were in the middle of that transition as it was going on and so he wasn't popular JNT wasn't popular either and it, had, it was regarded you know, the story's been well told elsewhere about, you know, Star Wars, the science fiction films that had come out in the early 80s and, and had undermined the BBC's ability to compete in a sci-fi world. You know, we were... Great Show in the Galaxy was shot in the gravel pit in Weymouth and a tent, mm. you know. Still looks good, though. And... It still looks good. You see, you've seen it recently? Yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't seen it recently, but I've seen it since then, or bits of it anyway. Uh, and, yeah, it looks OK. And I remember thinking at the time it looks OK. And what about Sylvester as a doctor? Well, I mean, I love Sylvester as an actor. You know, Sylvester... The, the, the world that I was in as an actor uh, was whole truck and touring and the Edinburgh Fringe and all of that, and Sylvester was a legend in that world, you know, Sylvester McCoy, because in his early days, all his work with uh, Joan Littlewood and all of that type of... I mean, so I already knew Sylvester, and to me, he was Sylvester McCoy, not because of Doctor Who, but because he was Sylvester McCoy. Mm. So I was a bit in awe of him for that, really. And uh, I, I thought he managed to get the relationship between taking it seriously and not taking it seriously which at the time was a very diff was a because people didn't know whether to sort of start to you know take the be self-aware of it sure and but he didn't him and Sophie didn't they played it but with a bit of wit as well so well, particularly difficult in that story, and I guess, and I guess that you know cap, the captain is called Captain Cook. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. The you know deadbeat, and the the, the the characters are one foot out of the reality. Yeah, yeah. But oh, yeah. You have to make them real. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I'm not particularly pleased with what I did in uh, the Greatest Show in the Galaxy. I think it's very weak, actually. One of the weakest things I ever did, and and the reason was. At the read-through, Chris Gard, who has a big scene in it where he goes Dulali, and in the read-through he went Dulali, sort of throwing himself about in the read-through, you know. And, and, and afterwards, we were having a conversation um, where I effectively asked him what was all that about, and he said, you know, this show is about ex really extraordinary things that happen to characters. And if they really happened, you would go crazy. So he said, I want to be going crazy now because if, if I don't, when it comes to shoot it, I won't be able to get there. And he was right. Because I took the other approach, which was I'll hold it and then on the day I'll go there. But I didn't go there. 
you know, because we're in a gravel pit in Weymouth, three hours behind. Alan needs to get the shot done, and I hadn't rehearsed it properly. So I, I, I was always regretful that I thought my performance in in the Doctor Who, my particular performance, was lazy. Interesting. So, you know, I could have done it much better than that. Well, I think but I learned that. I learned that because watching Chris do that, and then he was able to go that to that place when we actually got it, and me not being able to, I learned something about the rehearsal process, really, the, and a show like Doctor Who. And you see that now, where with the Chris Ellick, uh, um, what's his face when he came when it came back, Eccleston, Eccleston, Chris Eccleston when he came back, and. Um, Tenant, they all played it for real, and Billy Piper. You know, they were all these. This was tragic stuff, as of course it would be mm-hmm. if it were real, because it actually. I mean, it's sci-fi because we know it's sci-fi. But if it was actually happening, it wouldn't be sci-fi. It would be the real world if you see what yeah. I mean. So, and when you see people die, it's actually it's horrible. actually yeah. horrible. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, it's interesting, and you. And you Talk with great knowledge because, of course, you've you've uh, you you did a lot of acting, but as you say, you're a former actor because you've gone into directing and writing, so you've done it all. So, and you were saying to me last night that actually you were quite a reluctant actor, which surprised me. So, so tell me the story of, of how you became an well, actor and then why you stopped. What happened to become an actor? Um, I wanted to be a vet. And everybody kept telling me you're never going to get the A-levels to be a vet. But I wouldn't have it. I was going to be a vet. I mean, I do thank whatever force might be in the universe for the fact that I didn't become a vet because a lifetime with me and a cow doesn't seem very attractive now. <laughs> but uh, then I wanted to be a vet like anything. Uh, and But I went to an all-boys grammar school and somebody said to me, this youth theatre in the town and there's loads of birds there I was 15 so me and two other mates went to this youth theatre because there were birds there for no other reason I'd never thought about being an actor I'd never never crossed my mind and we went to this youth theatre and it happened to be casting for a show I got a part in the show I then stole all the reviews and uh, thought this is the thing I can do because up until then I'd been you know the two mates I went with to this thing we were quite oddballs outsiders and I suddenly found something the thing that I could do that most other people couldn't so not um, unsurprisingly I embraced it But but I knew then as soon as I thought oh I could go into the business I then thought I want to direct television because television was to me the most wonderful thing I grew up in Coventry sometimes difficult upbringing and the television to me was an amazing thing and I think it's true to say that the television in the second half of the 60s and the 70s was amazing and all this stuff about there wasn't a golden age and all that, it's nonsense, it's self-justifying nonsense, because there was a golden age, and it was amazing. British television was incredible, when you look back. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, the, the, and, and the fact there were only three channels was actually the, the, the great thing about it, because in an evening, you'd watch Panorama, a sitcom, and a Z cars all in one night, you know, you, and you, because we've got all this choice now, but what that means is people tend to just watch what they know, already know they like. Mm. Yeah. And then they just get siloed into, I watch the History Channel, or I watch this, or... Whereas the whole point about television then was that it was, you, it was just this stuff coming at you and these amazing shows. And you discovered what you liked that yeah, you didn't know that you that liked. that you didn't know that you liked because you were being constantly exposed to all this stuff that you had no idea. And you would, you'd watch this panorama on a subject you never knew anything about and go, oh my God, look at that. Mm-hmm. So I found it, television rather than film, Rather than theatre, I I thought two things about television. I thought it was amazing, wonderful, magical, and important. Uh, and I then subsequently dedicated my life to television. And the tragedy for me personally has been that by the time I got to actually make it, it wasn't worth it anymore. It wasn't the television that you'd grown up no. watching. So did you feel... So for those that don't know, you, you became a television director, you directed EastEnders, and, uh, the, but, but you, you f- feel it was more of a, a treadmill then, was it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the process we were talking about, that corporatisation, which, to be fair, didn't just happen... You know, this was in 1979 when uh, Margaret Thatcher was elected, the world changed. And from then on, the post-war consensus that had created the welfare state and the BBC was part of that um, was systematically destroyed you know Thatcher what beat the unions in 84 and the next union she came after were the showbiz unions that was the next big thing the second half of the 80s was dominated by her taking on the media unions the press and uh, the unions in television and that was all done specifically to allow Rupert Murdoch's Sky to come in because nobody was buying it. Mm-hmm. You know, the British public didn't want the Sky dish and the B Sky B or whatever it was, BSB, as it was called, because there were two companies originally and nobody was buying them. So, in fact, in order to create the market that would allow Rupert Murdoch to come in and with his um, profit-making, they had to destroy the already existing system that was working very well, and they did. Um, so you achieved your dream, um, but found it, uh, the wake-up call was not... I mean, did you know when you were going into it, oh, I've come into this too late, or was it a slow realisation? It was a slowish realisation, because it was actually a very, very difficult journey for me, because I finished, finished Lovejoy in '93. I made it short. I made two or three short films in the year following, one of which, you know, several of which won awards actually, and um, uh, but I couldn't get arrested. I could not get any work as a director, and um, I was very shocked by that, to be honest, and. Um, Nonplussed, you know, I didn't know what to do really, and basically, I near, very nearly went bankrupt. Uh, and we were, it was really tough time. And during the early part of the 90s, I'd also had a production company developing formats 
we had been very, very successful in development, but because it was basically me and a computer and, you know, we hadn't really been able to break through into production, which is where the money was, you know. Um, but then I'd been developing ideas and I'd been hiring other writers to write the ideas and I ran out of money and I had an idea for a cop show and I thought, well, I can't afford to hire a writer, I'm going to have to write it. So I wrote the pilot of it and I thought, they're saying, I don't know, maybe this is quite good actually. Because what had happened was somebody, somebody else, a friend of mine, had said about the, the writing that I did for the company, writing these formats. They said, you know, your writing's very good. Now, I'm practically dyslexic, and I. So the idea of being a writer was something I couldn't get my head around. But they said, you're a very good writer, so I thought, well, right. so I wrote this cop show. And I then, to find out whether it was any good, I sent it to some people I knew who I respected to say, look, I've written this, what do you think? Is it any good? And one of them was a script editor on The Bill, and she said, yeah, not only is it good, do you want to do an episode of The Bill? And as I say, I was practically going under financially, and this was when it was half hours. So I said, yeah, so I wrote this half-hour episode of The Bill that was very successful. They then went to our episodes of the bill almost immediately took me with them and then I had the most amazing 18 months the only time in my life when people have been seeking me for work because being freelance is a nightmare most of the time but if suddenly for a reason you're in demand it's quite pleasant and that was the only time in my life that that happened and every time the phone rang it was another gig and I got two or three shows of my own off into development and of course now I'm the writer I'm making money out of this mm -hmm. and so for about five or six years I earned a living as a writer um, and then slowly went mad in me shed on my own writing um, and in the meantime I'd sort of accepted that I wasn't going to make it as a director and then the guy who was the runner on the first series of Lovejoy in 1985, Chris Ballantyne was now the, the producer of EastEnders. And I'd gone to see him a year previously, and then suddenly he just sent me, he left me a voice text and said, uh, it's Chris here, I've got a block of EastEnders, do you want to direct it in November? And I was on Bayswater, I was 42, I think, 43, and I was on Bayswater train station and I burst into tears when I heard this message because I was 43 and I was finally going to get the thing that I'd wanted to do since I was 17, which is direct television. And it was a fantastic moment. Then I discovered when I got in there that what it had been, it no longer was, and that we were in this corporate world where basically directors, writers, even producers, our job is to articulate the vision of people we never see or meet, who sit in offices changing stories on a whim uh, without any thought for what that involves for the people actually on the floor making it. And um, I had some amazing moments directing. I did the... Christmas Day 
EastEnders 19, uh, 2004. I did the Christmas Day EastEnders, and I mean, it was good stuff. And when you're in a, uh, I mean, yeah, okay, the, the, the exec thing and compromising vision, and you're, you're a mechanic rather than an artist and all the, that sort of thing. But in terms of the actual job on the ground, is, is there a thing where you're working with people who've been there a very long time where I know what I'm doing, you don't need to tell me what to do, or, or are they pretty flexible? Oh, the, the cast and the crew on EastEnders I found brilliant. I mean, they want you to push it, they want you to... I mean, it's not always the case. I mean, we were talking about Manchester, and I actually found the crews in Manchester quite conservative, not really... Come on, mate, you know, do the wide shot, the close-ups, and come, and we can go and have dinner. But on EastEnders, that wasn't the case. They wanted, you know, you get the... Shall we get the track out? And they'd go, yeah, let's do it. And, the cameramen and the crew and the actors were really up for it and enjoyed, you know, the excitement of it and trying to push it a little bit and do a little bit of this. So I've got a lot of time for all that gang down at Elstree. It was a great, very good cruise. I'm working. Nobody, nobody really has any idea of how hard it is to film television on an ongoing basis. I mean, it is mind-bogglingly difficult. And people go down. The second time I was on East... Well, not the second time. Towards the end of my time on EastEnders, the exec producer went under. Because she was getting attacked in the press. By name. You know. 20 years before, nobody would have ever even known who the producer or exec of a show was. You know, I mean... So the pressures of doing this day in, day out, because telly like that just passes you by. You know what I mean? It's on three times a week. You catch an ep, you don't. It just goes on like wallpaper in the background. And the amount of money and creative effort that goes into making these shows, nobody has an idea. And the burnout rate is intense, because you just can't keep it up. You can't keep it up. And indeed, you've gone into... Passing on your wisdom and, and, <laughs> and, and yeah. was, was that conscious? Did you need? Did you need to get out of? Yeah, television? I need. No, I mean, I definitely needed to get out. I needed. I, I, I was making a type of television that I didn't admire. You know, because I love an, uh, television, and you know, to be doing something like Doctor Who or whatever would be marvelous. But I was stuck. For all sorts of reasons, I got stuck doing a certain type of television that I didn't really admire. And um, it was doing my head in. I mean, I sometimes jokingly say that when I left Hull University in 1979, if, I, if I'd known then how much television I was personally going to be responsible for, I'd have probably thrown myself off the Humber Bridge, you know. <laughs> um, so it was because I thought it was important and do think television could be important. I don't think it is anymore. Or if it is, it's only important in negative ways, i.e. the pernicious effect it's having on society. Um, but because I thought it was important, I, find it, I found it really difficult to do. I mean, some of the best directing I ever did was on the, the rebirth of uh, Crossroads, when they redid it mm. in the 2000s. And I can't put it on any showreel because the content is just ludicrous. 
literally ludicrous. You can't use it. So is, is the hope then? You're, 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 you're teaching at, at Bath? Bath Spa University I teach at at the moment, yeah. And is the, in your, in your uh, charges, is the hope for the future? Um, I think there is hope for the future, I have to say, because I think HBO has changed everything in worldwide television drama especially. And I think that BBC, uh, not just BBC, UK TV drama, since I left, <laughs> it's probably might be because I left. <laughs> um, but since, uh, I don't know, sort of 2000s, mid-2000s onwards, it's actually gradually started to come round, and I think it's very healthy at the moment, actually. Um, and I think that's partly HBO, and I think there has been a recognition, finally, that they've got to let people do the shows. So Doctor Who's a prime example where they put a writer in charge of it. Now, that's what they do in America. A showrunner in America of all these shows, Sopranos, Deadwood, you know, Revolution, all these fantastic shows that come out of America, the person running it is a writer. They're called a showrunner. So they put, effectively, a showrunner in charge of Doctor Who when they brought it back. And the result has been hugely successful. And then, um, I mean, Life on Mars was the thing in the UK that changed everything. Because Life on Mars was on BBC One. Not on BBC Three, not on BBC Four, not on some satellite channel that no one's ever heard of in the middle of the night, but in prime time on BBC One. A show about a bloke in a coma who goes back to the 70s. I mean, it's unpitchable. Mm. And so suddenly... The execs go, oh, there's an audience who want intelligent stuff with content. Uh, you know, which is people like me, and to be fair, almost everyone I knew in television was sort of screaming that for the 15 years previously. And a sort of cynical management, we're going to, no, no, you know, it's all got to be soap. The only thing people will watch is soap. And it eventually just, you know, run out of steam. So I think there is hope now. I mean, I don't think there's... I mean, there might be hope for the corporatisation thing, because, again, HBO was... HBO's model of showrunners was a very deliberate thing, because American television had driven itself... The corporatisation of American television had driven it into the ground, you know, and a lot of it was rubbish. Um... And so that idea of, of, of giving the creative autonomy back to creative people might gather force. Well, this has been a brilliant conversation that's covered all sorts of things, but I've, I've exceeded my time. So, but I can't leave you without asking you about Lovejoy. I mean, is that, that time you look back on with fondness? It's always oh, yeah. loved show. Oh, yeah, I mean, we, it was gorgeous. I mean, we loved it. Um, Dudley and Phyllis are still very, very close dear friends of mine, and Malcolm Tierney, really dear friends of mine. Um, you know, I set out to be an actor. I did some, you know, the, me fringe theatre and stuff like that that I really loved and meant something a lot to me. But I actually got the chance as an actor to do a big show for six years, and not many of us get the opportunity to do that. Um, so, a, I learned so much. You know, doing it every day, it's still, you know loved and you get now through the internet and the websites you get mail all the time about it and it's been on twice a day on yesterday 
I mean, that's a bit upsetting, you know. You get 12p. You get Well, no, no, you, you get more than that. You get, you know, I mean, you're not going to get rich on it, but it's better than a kick in the teeth. But, um, no, the, you, you know, you're, we're, we're back on telly twice a day. The channel's called Yesterday. <laughs> it's like, oh, sugar. Hey, yeah, OK, thanks. You're now thanks. nostalgia. Yeah, we're now, we're now nostalgia, yeah. All oh. oh, right, OK, when did that happen? Um, so, yeah, but that's great. And, and uh, you know, fantastic, great days, yeah. Well, uh, it just remains for me to ask you, because you've kindly given me uh, plenty of your time, uh, and listeners, you're not paying for this, so please put your hands in your pockets for Chris's charity, which is... I can't think of one. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what you could do. Yeah, I know exactly what you could do. You can put your hand in your pocket and make a donation to the Morning Star. Ah. Which is the the only left-wing daily newspaper left in the country, and it's a triumph of hope over good sense and it's a fantastic thing so put your hand in your pocket and put some make it a small donation to the morning star uh, and doctor who is 50 this year what's your message to those listening doctor who fans god bless you you're great chris. i love doing these doctor who things they're fantastic well chris jury that was a great chat thanks very much indeed thank you that was brilliant thank you good i like it when we talk about stuff There we go, that'll throw the Casamwick's pigeons. I really enjoyed that, thanks to Chris and to Erica Edgerton and her Who at the Hillbra convention. Uh, and she's planning another one for next year. Um, so uh, check that out, it's always good fun. Chris's charity, it's a good job I checked this because I googled and very nearly directed you to the Morning Star Restaurant and Inn in Oldham. But it's not that, it's Morning Star, which is at www. Morningstar Online, all one word, all small case, morningstaronline.co.uk. Now there's another Who's Round coming up in fairly short order, I'm sure. Uh, And I'll stick a preview to that on after this, but not before I say thanks for listening. Follow me on Twitter, Toby Haydock, at Toby Haydock. And uh, goodbye. Uh, they wanted a, like a pull string, as if you'd have in a bathroom to click the lights on or down. And um, so there was a strike on at the time. The scene crew were on strike, and there was no one there to uh, tie a bit of string onto a baton. I got the chippy to put up. So I tied a string, and from then on, I was in trouble because it wasn't my job to tie a piece of string onto a piece of wood. And, uh, and then I got bumped by uh, a scene scene crew supervisors who were still working and they kept bumping into me and um, then I had to leave the studio and someone else to take over. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Rani Elite. Oh, incredible. This booth is actually smaller on the inside. The doors won't open. But if you hang on just a moment. Doctor, what are you... Now, now, genius at work. Ah, that shouldn't have happened. I have to say, you've been rather a disappointment. That very soon, this will all be over for you. 
Thank you for the gun, Doctor. Perry? But that's just it. You're not Perry, are you? You see, you do know me after all. I knew you would. Spit it out, girl. I can see it's on the tip of your tongue. The Ronnie! Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.